82% of large firms with employee numbers between 200 and 1,000 are really the predominant player in this space. That was Diana Villanova, Vice President, Patient Support Service Strategy, and today's guest on Mercalis in Motion. News and information on the biopharma life science industry and the role that Mercalis plays in it. Here's your host, Landy Townsend. Welcome to the first episode of Mercalis in Motion. Mercalis is an integrated life sciences commercialization partner that provides comprehensive solutions that span the entire healthcare value chain. The company partners closely with its clients to deliver an end-to-end spectrum of commercial capabilities that work together seamlessly and flexibly. Backed by proven industry expertise and results-driven technology, Mercalis provides the data and strategic insights, patient support services, and healthcare provider engagement tools to help life science companies successfully commercialize new products. Above all, Mercalis helps navigate the complex life sciences marketplace to accelerate value and enhance patient lives. Founded in 2000, Mercalis provides commercialization solutions to more than 500 life sciences customers and has provided access and affordability support to millions of patients. The company is headquartered in Morrisville, North Carolina. For more information about Mercalis, please visit mercalis.com. My name is Landy Townsend, and I'm the VP of Marketing and Communications here at Mercalis. And with me, as usual, is uh, Eric Manning, Creative Director here at Mercalis. Eric, something's a little different today. Yeah, I don't. I don't mean to demean what the uh, you know Navy SEALs go through in their uh, training, but uh, what we've been going through here the last month or two is, I think, the corporate equi- equivalent of buds. We have been extremely busy. Uh, those of you who are fans of, of Trial Card Talk, uh, welcome to a new dawn in our podcast life. Um, recently, we have rebranded. Trial Card has rebranded uh, as Mercalis. And as such, our podcast name has changed from Trial Card Talk to Mercalis in Motion. So we are happy to have you back with us for uh, a brand new episode. Um, we're going to have our president and CEO, Scott Doolitz, on the podcast in October to talk more about the rebranding process. So what prompted Trial Card's rebranding initiative this year? Well, Trial Card has been in business for more than 23 years. And during that time, we've continuously innovated, expanded, and acquired capabilities to serve life sciences customers end-to-end across the full scope of their needs. Over time, frankly, we outgrew our name, which was connected to our early leadership in one specific service offering. The new name and rebrand was employed to reflect the reality of our company's evolution, which now offers a comprehensive breadth of integrated services along with the depth of our legacy expertise. The name Mercalis is a Latin term closely related to for commerce or commercial. It's also a verbal shorthand for the phrase commercialized life sciences, which is a nod to the role the company plays in partnering with life sciences companies. Our goal is not only to complement their expertise with the ability to navigate the marketplace, but to also drive business results and most importantly, enhance patient lives. So that's it in a nutshell, Eric. 
We're going to talk a lot more in the near future, and there's going to be a lot that is on the web about the name change. But today, let's turn the focus back to our guest. We have a fantastic guest today who is talking about a topic that is on everybody's minds. Um, So why don't we get to it? Our guest today is Diana Villanova, the VP of Patient Support Services Strategy. Diana, welcome to the podcast. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Hi, Landy. Thanks for having me on the show today. Yes, um, I joined the company about a year ago now, and prior to that was working with a boutique market access consulting firm running their patient services and distribution verticals. I worked with life science companies on bringing their drugs to market and helping them develop strategy for both patient services and distribution all the way through and post-launch. So I'm excited to be here today talking about a topic that is near and dear to my heart. I am too. I apologize that it's taken us so long to get you on the podcast, but today is is our lucky day. We're we're happy to have you here in the studio. And so, as Diana mentioned, the topic that is near and dear to her heart is alternate funding programs. So we are going to talk about that uh, in great detail. It's a hot topic right now, and Diana is well versed in the subject. Diana, first of all, let's just let's just cut to the chase. What are alternate funding programs? And why are they presenting challenges for drug manufacturers right now? Yeah, so what we're seeing in our industry is just a rising cost overall of healthcare, And it's resulting in employers looking for new ways to offer quality health care to their employees. As a result, self-funded insurance programs are on the rise and incomes alternate funding providers who are third-party administrators that work predominantly with these self-funded insurance plans to find alternate ways to obtain high-cost medications. Self-funded insurance companies only pay for the benefits their employees use, so this becomes a very attractive offering to them. And AFPs, which is the acronym for Alternate Funding Providers, help them find a way to reduce that overall cost. So they're working with these employers to set their plan design and ultimately deciding what drugs they want to cover and what drugs not to cover. This becomes a problem for manufacturers because funds that are allocated for patients are being misused as a direct result of this practice. And it's a problem because right now there's really no clear-cut indicators in claims data that manufacturers typically use to monitor and maintain their drug spend to detect where and if their programs are being impacted. It's quite a challenge. And is this something, why are we just, it seems like it's just sort of taken off. Why is it now that we're, we're hearing about this and what has made this so popular Uh, recently? Yeah, so alternate funding providers and alternate funding programs have been around for a really long time. But again, with the rise of healthcare, people are looking for new and innovative ways to cut costs yet provide healthcare to their employees. And, you know, self-funded, self-funding, we used to think of it traditionally as 
you know, unions or teachers, um, small companies. But that's not the case anymore. If you take a look at the 2022 Kaiser Family Foundation survey of employer health benefits, what you'll see is that 65% of employers are utilizing self-funded plans. And it's no longer the small companies anymore. 82% of large firms with employee numbers between 200 and 1,000 are really the predominant player in this space. That number is 9% higher in 2022 than it was in 2021. And remember, the impact of alternate funding programs really only affects commercially insured. So kind of like when you're looking at things like accumulators and maximizers that we're all very familiar with, they're only on commercial. AFP impact is only on commercial underinsured patients. So it is a subset of the market, but it is a growing subset of that market. So we take a look at the utilization in the marketplace. Again, based on this 2022 data, we have 21% of self-funded insurance plans are currently using AFPs to reduce their costs. 47% are exploring using AFPs and 32% are not using them. Now, something very different about self-funded insurers versus traditional insurance plans is that there's two enrollment periods for self-funded plans. We see a spike in January and we see another spike in July. So one of the things as we're following these trends is, you know, manufacturers are coming to us, you know, on the back half of the year going, I don't understand what's happening. All, you know, all of a sudden my programs, I'm seeing weird data in my programs and the utilization is increasing what's happening. And it's usually a direct result of these alternate funding programs coming into play on the back half of the year after that July enrollment period. That's good to know. I'm sure there, I can imagine the confusion when something like that happens and you're trying to put a reason behind what you're seeing with the numbers and there's no explanation. Yes, it's really creating a lot of challenges for many manufacturers. And again, there is no clear-cut data and the traditional sources that we've always gone to, which is claims data, it's not showing up there. Diana, when we talk about the impact, what is the impact of alternate funding programs to manufacturer programs? Predominantly, we were seeing impact to patient assistance programs or traditional PAP programs, but now we're seeing AFPs affecting copay as well. And they're looking and feeling very much like traditional maximizer programs. We had the opportunity to sit down with about 20 manufacturers earlier this spring and really workshop what's happening in the AFP space and what are they doing about it. And the statistics that we came out with is, you know, 59% of the manufacturers that we spoke with are seeing um, the effect of alternate funding programs in their portfolio, but only 39% of them are currently addressing it, that in some way. There's 52% that are still deciding. And one of the big reasons is there 62% say we can't even identify them. But more importantly, 
this is the first time where patient support folks have to sit back and say, what are we going to do about this? Are we going to put dollars into a program to keep patients off therapy? It goes against everything that folks in the patient support business want to do. Our objective is to get patients on therapy and keep them on therapy regardless of if they can afford it or not. So so this really this issue is a tough pill to swallow for a lot of a lot of manufacturers and they they just don't know how to react. Yeah, it's it's one thing to not know that it's going on, but knowing like the percentages that you quoted, knowing that it's happening but not knowing what to do about it is really generates a very helpless situation. Are there certain therapeutic areas that are being affected more than others? I wish I can say yes, Landy, but, um, you know, in the beginning, it's been historically high-cost specialty drugs, but these AFPs are getting very savvy. And, you know, just like we saw with accumulators and maximizers 24 months ago, you know, there's been iterations of how these guys are evolving and what they're targeting. So high cost specialty drugs for sure are being affected, but one they're designing their plan designs. Um, They're sometimes carving out full drug classes, regardless of the drugs in there. And I've even seen it where um, they go by whack and it's not high cost drugs as low as $200 whack price. I've seen carved out of, of plan designs by AFPs. So th- there's really no rhyme or reason here. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, it'll be interesting to see if that changes over time. If, uh, you know, if, if the, the numbers are kind of skewed in a way that impacts one therapeutic area over another uh, in the near future. Diana, why is this such a challenging issue to solve for, do you think? You know, as I said earlier, you know, there really are no clear cut indicators to detect when these AFPs are involved. And frankly, you know, there are new AFP, you know, companies, new third-party administrators that are popping up every day. Right now, we have a, a list that's about 30, 35 AFPs, and it's growing on a regular basis. So staying on top of this is one challenge. Because it's not in claims data, it's a very manual process. It's time consuming. And now with the crossover from PAP into copay, manufacturers really need insight into the complete patient journey across their programs in order to see the full impact. So that be, that that's a problem for one of two reasons, because typically Multiple vendors are involved in managing these manufacturer programs. And also, there could be very strict firewalls in place from one side of the organization managing a patient assistance program to the other side of the organization, which is the commercial organization managing the copay program. And they're not talking to each other. So what we're seeing right now is a very common um cycle for AFPs is a drug will be covered with 100% patient out of pocket. It'll then hit the copay program. And if the copay is not buying it all the way down, 
then the patient becomes functionally uninsured and they're going into a PAP program. Well, if those two parts of the business are not talking to one another, you don't know that that manufacturer has just basically paid for that patient's drug on copay. And now ultimately they might end up putting them on free drug on PAP. So manufacturers are now being hit multiple times as a result of this. So that becomes the big challenge. How do you see across the firewall? How do you see across all the vendor data that's coming in across these programs? That's amazing that uh, two different departments in the same company could be effectively competing against each other and not know it because that communication is not is not being had. That's crazy. Well, uh, and unfortunately, it's a compliance thing, and you know, it, it's it's a real problem. And I, aside from having it all under one manufacturer or vendor roof, and having insight into that whole patient journey is the only way that we've figured out how to solve for that thus far. Right. Now, you travel all around the country and meet with a lot of clients, but what what are people saying? What are the manufacturers, how are they responding to this? So there's varying levels of response. And and really, again, it's based on what is the impact that they're seeing. And again, I'm going to relate it to a topic that we're all very familiar with, accumulators and maximizers. You know, typically manufacturers will put mitigation programs in place once they hit a certain threshold. Same is true here with AFPs. So they're monitoring the impact. And if there's a certain threshold that that they go over, then they're looking to put, put a program in place. The other issue is the tolerance level. We talked about this earlier. It's an uncomfortable feeling to potentially deny these patients therapy because a third party is involved. Sometimes these patients don't know it. And more importantly, an employer might have signed up for this program thinking that they're doing good where it's ultimately harming their employees because they're not they're being denied access to drugs that they have need. Now, when we do see manufacturers taking action, it typically has been an iterative approach that's evolved over time. And it usually starts with simple things like modifying program business rules and eligibility criteria for both the PAP program and a copay program. Next thing they might do is add in self-attestation language as part of their terms and conditions that basically makes a patient say, no, I'm not working with an alternate funding provider. Very similar to, again, things like what happened with accumulators and maximizers. No, I'm not part of an accumulator maximizer program. We've seen manufacturers try to work with these folks. So they're offering bridge products while they work to appeal the drug and try to get it covered as opposed to being carved out. We've seen where they stratify the the patient assistance patients into different cohorts to try to more effectively manage the problem. So they'll take commercial versus government and then they'll further break that down and say uninsured versus underinsured. That's one way. So they're managing just that underinsured commercial bucket a little bit closer, knowing that all the other cohorts really are not being affected by this. 
some manufacturers are just denying. They're saying, okay, well, if you're an AFP, we're just denying you flat out. But it's kind of everything in between here, Landy, and each manufacturer is different about where they feel comfortable with this right now. And what are what are we doing? Like, as, as I mentioned before, I mean, you, you talk to a lot of people out in the field. Um, are we able to help manufacturers manage this risk that you talked about that's associated with AFPs? We are. And actually, we have 31 active programs or brands that we are doing various levels of program detection, monitoring, and action for. And we have four more programs in development that will be up and running within the next month or two. And and again, going back to going back to who are these guys and are they targeting different different therapeutic areas? Of those 30, 31, 35 programs, there's six different therapeutic areas represented. And it's on both the pharmacy and the medical benefit. So it, it's crossing over. It's it's programs with REMS. It's biosimilars. Nobody's safe. <laughs> I don't mean to sound like Chicken Little and say the sky is falling, but it, it's kind of affecting everybody. Yeah, no, it sounds um, like it. And um, where, where we have insight into the complete patient journey today for this manufacturer, we are monitoring both PAP and copay programs for impact. We're just about out of time, Diana, but uh, before we go, I wanted to just ask you one last question. And what are your thoughts, our thoughts as a company on this industry practice as we move forward? Obviously, this is a, an evolving, moving target, if you will. But what would you say about this going forward? Yeah, you're right about that, Landy. It is evolving quickly. Like I said, in in within the last six to eight months, we've seen it jump from PAP only to now PAP and copay. Um, there's no legislation right now out there to uh, protect or try to rule against these programs yet. So I think that they're going to continue to grow and take advantage of blind spots in the patient journey such as what we talked about earlier, where manufacturer crossover sometimes from the patient assistance side of the house versus the commercial side of the house, they don't talk to each other. That's a blind spot. I think that that as these guys get smarter, they're going to take advantage of as many of those as they possibly can. So we're staying on the forefront of this issue and incorporating efficient ways to identify detection and mitigate risk at the first fill by leveraging not only our e-services offerings in new and unique ways, but also tools that we already have in our tool belt. So we're excited to really be able to offer a service to our manufacturer partners that can really make a difference in their gross to net and how many patients stay on therapy. Diana, it's truly been a pleasure having you on the podcast today. I, I apologize that it's taken us a year to invite you, but I hope uh, you'll come back and I hope uh, we'll have uh, many more conversations just like this one in the near future. Thanks, Landy. This was a lot of fun. I look forward to doing it again. And I'm sure if we talk about this in six months, we're going to have a whole different conversation. <laughs> so I think you're right. I think you're right. Topic. 
Absolutely. That was Diana Villanova, the VP of Patient Support Services Strategy. Diana, we'll talk to you soon. So that's it, our first podcast under the Mercalis in Motion name. As I've mentioned many times before during our podcast, if you heard something today that piques your curiosity and you want to hear more, please check out our entire library of episodes on your favorite podcast platform. If you like what you hear, please subscribe, rate, and review us. And if you'd like to know more about any of our many services, please send us an email to sales at mercalis.com. Until then, stay safe and be well, and we will see you next month. The Mercalis in Motion podcast is a production of Mercalis, Inc. It is edited and produced by Mercalis Creative Director Eric Manning. Mercalis in Motion and its content are the property of Mercalis, Inc., Morrisville, North Carolina, USA.